Good evening, Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry Studios. This is the in the Pacific Northwest, and the day happens to be the Sunday, 3rd of April, and the year is, of course, 2022. We're at number 25 in this lecture arc on diabetes, and I, I only thought I would get to 20, but I keep on finding information that I need to, um, first of all, analyze and then put together with the other material that are in my lecture notes and the vast amount of literature that I've been reviewing to put together a synthesis of how this information comes together to understand this pathophysiology of particularly type two diabetes. So today is again, gonna be a continuation of that. I don't think we're going to get finished today. I do think we're going to have at least two more lectures like this. And then I will really try to do a video lecture to put everything together. And that'll probably be a good hour, hour and 20 minutes. So let's just get right into this lecture today. Now, you know the type 2 diabetes is associated with hyperglycemia. And because that's because there is a peripheral resistance to insulin signaling and therefore resistance to glucose uptake. And ultimately, it may be linked to a failure of the pancreas to act as endocrine function, particularly the beta cells, to secrete insulin in sufficient molar quantity to be able to induce glucose uptake. Now, we know <clears throat> that that is not the case until much later in the disease state because the initial phase is hyperinsulinemia, then insulin resistance, and then, of course, dysregulated or unregulated hyperglucosemia, and then throughout the process of the disease, dyslipidemia. But when the pancreatic beta cells do try to produce more insulin to increase the uptake of glucose in the adipose and skeletal muscle, where most of this is occurring because of insulin-dependent uh, uptake. Oh, that's, of course, a process called beta cell decompensation. That's a term that's used in diabetic research. Now, to go back to some statistics, I'm getting all this from a paper published in Progress and Lipid Research in April of 2019, so it's a few years old. Um, in 2015, which is the data they had at that time, you had almost 400 million people diagnosed with uh, type 2 diabetes worldwide. And the estimate is you're going to probably um, double that at least by 2040. Obviously, if you've been listening to all these lectures, you would know, and plus if you're a medical doctor, you're aware of it, that insulin resistance is the primary readout of type 2 diabetes. It occurs early, even in the prodromal stages of the disease, and it continues throughout. It's associated with this hyperglycemia and then hyperinsulinemia, as I've been saying. And basically, it's a corruption of the ability for insulin to act in an endocrine manner. Now, that doesn't mean that insulin itself isn't secreted appropriately. It just means that downstream from synthesis, 
and secretion and circulation, the insulin binding to its receptor becomes corrupted. We talked about one of the major ways that occurs is fatty acid, particularly free fatty acid accumulation, inhibiting that insulin-dependent GLUT transport, as the glucose transporter, to the plasma membrane for glucose uptake in skeletal muscle and adipose. Now, those are the two major organ systems that take up a bulk of the glucose in circulation. Yeah. So we also have been saying many, many times that obesity is a very high risk factor for type 2 diabetes. So obesity or overweight or high BMI, however it's measured, has been typically associated with early onset type 2 diabetes. Now, there are people who are overweight or frankly obese who do not have diabetes. And so there is a group of people, they're probably in a smaller population, certainly than those that are obese that do have, that do develop type 2 diabetes, but those are called healthy obese. Now, I would use the word healthy uh, with scare quotes, because if someone's obese, they may not show characteristic type 2 diabetes, but they very likely will show dyslipidemia, which is the underlying pathology in diabetes. So I wouldn't call them healthy obese, because very likely they have a lot of problem with lipoprotein metabolism, liver um, accumulation of lipid, and of course, all of the signaling and all the errors involved in bioenergetics and control of metabolism, not just in organ systems like the liver, the kidney, the lung, the adipose, the skeletal muscle, the central nervous system, and the cardiac muscle, but also in the immune cells, right? And so this uh, entire process uh, is driven into um, negative territory, pathophysiology, pathobiochemistry, because of dyslipidemia. So it's a dysfunctional adiposity, and it's linked to visceral fat, chronic inflammation, and yeah, if it's got the hallmark of type 2 diabetes, it's going to be insulin resistance, or IR. So the risk of pre-diabetic system and then full-blown T2D is definitely visceral obesity, more so than general adiposity. Now, there's a reason for that because the kind of fat that's laid down in the visceral depot fat system is different than the fat that's scattered throughout the body. In fact, think about our whole discussion of intramuscular triacylglycerol and the utilization of that rather large lipid deposit for normal muscle contraction and activity during the aerobic phase of skeletal muscle activity. Obviously, it could be a lot of lipid associated with the muscle. In fact, healthy athletes have a lot of IMTG, intramyocellar. So we can't talk about the fact that that kind of lipid deposition, even at higher levels, in actively uh, functional aerobic musculature, would cause any problems with diabetes. In fact, they may be very healthy people. So we're really talking about the accumulation 
of storage triacylglycerol in the visceral adipose depot fat. It's the major link here with type 2 diabetes. Now, unfortunately, that's the most common way that people put on fat. If it's not around the gut, then it's around the backside or sometimes in the upper chest area, depending on whether or not you're male or female, right? Now, linked to this um, type 2 diabetes, you're going to have, of course, hyperlipidemia. It's going to be high circulating triacylglycerol, usually associated with uh, lipoproteins. And it's not only the LDL and BLDL or IDL. You also have a lot of triacylglycerol in chylomicrons and also to some degree also in high-density lipoprotein. Uh, and of course, serum albumin. And then of course, you also have free fatty acids circulating, right? or so-called non-esterified fatty acids. So what it's called when you have both hyperlipidemia and hyperglycemia, sometimes it's called glucolipotoxicity, right? Because carbohydrate, particularly glucose, uh, can be toxic to cells. We've talked about this. And um, amide-linked glycan can corrupt protein activity. For example, uh, glycan-linked, glucose-linked hemoglobin corrupts oxygen transport. So that's only one uh, example. But they call it glucolipotoxicity, but it's basically dyslipidemia. And yeah, it, because of that, you have high circulating glucose. And I think I've made that pretty clear from our discussions on how this uh, arises because of the depot fat. You're not putting on a lot of carbohydrate. You're not increasing glycogen content. Um, you just have a lot of glucose that's in circulation. And at, postprandially, the inability to take that glucose up into those two major organ systems, the adipose and the muscle. So you can see why I still call it a dyslipidemic rather than a glucolipotoxicity. But that's in the literature and, and his paper talks about it. So, okay, I need to add that to your uh, nomenclature. But basically you're talking about chronic inflammation, insulin resistance, and yeah, you do get abnormal pancreatic islet beta cell um, metabolism and of course secretion of insulin. So you get pro-inflammatory cytokines. Remember that's IL-6 is one of the major, the family of IL-6. Tumor necrosis factor alpha is also highly elevated in obese subjects. And what this leads to is systemic inflammation, and that will promote peripheral insulin resistance. So you get adipose dysfunction, skeletal mus muscle dysfunction associated with this obesity. Okay, And besides type 2 di diabetes, you also, of course, get metabolic syndrome, which has to do with, uh, of course, high blood pressure. It's another component of the disease. And of course, kidney issues. So when there's kidney involvement, it's more about metabolic syndrome, typically. Now, there's a lot of therapy about T2D, uh, and it involves uh, decreasing uh, caloric intake, decreasing carbohydrate intake. And if both of those are diminished and you still have a high fat diet, yeah, that can still lead to a lot of adiposity, in particular visceral adiposity. But I think I made it pretty clear to you that the real corruption is when carbohydrate metabolism, particularly glucose metabolism, alters major intermediary metabolic regulation. Of that, I mean glycolysis and gluconeogenesis, fatty acid synthesis, fatty acid degradation, 
that you lead then into a systemic uh, diabetic state. Okay. But lipids are always the precursors to this uh, disorder. And in fact, dyslipidemia occurs throughout the uh, manifestation of type 2 diabetes. Whereas glucose can be controlled and you still have dyslipidemia and obesity and a great deal of pathophysiology and pathobiochemistry. All right, so you know that the major reason that people gain weight is because there is more caloric intake than there is exercise. And that sedentary lifestyle there's, there's been occurring in humans only really since um, the middle of the 20th century, except in rare populations, very wealthy populations, um, is why you see the rise in this obesity epidemic and then the type 2 diabetic uh, syndromes that you find worldwide now, right? 600 million probably in the next 10, 15 years are going to be people suffering from type 2 diabetes. It's a great number of people. Now, sphingolipids, <clears throat> particularly ceramides and sphingocene, but also to some extent sphingomyelin activity are all linked to this dyslipidemia. Now, you know that sphingolipids have fatty, they're complex lipids, so they're going to have a component of fatty acid. So it's still fatty acid metabolism that is the major core of the um, dyslipidemic syndrome. So you also have glycerolipids, but sphingolipids have been looked at because sphingolipids have a more potent activity of signaling, primarily due to the fact that they can lead to programmed cell death and autophagy, depending on what kind of sphingolipid uh, is involved. So, but intimately linked to energy expenditure. So, of course, sphingolipids have this sphingoid base that is a condensation between palmitic acid and serine, right? That's how you make sphingosine. And then you have various, they're called polar head groups, but they're typically not necessarily polar. If you call something like trimethylethanolamine uh, polar, uh, which of course is choline, then I guess, yeah, that you can include that. But Sphingomyelin, of course, has phosphonylcholine as its head group, right? But you also have to remember that you add fatty acids to the nitrogen atom of that sphingosine base, and that's how you make ceramides. And you can actually also make acyl ceramides by adding another fatty acid to that carboxylic acid um, residue. So then you have essentially two fatty acids is sterified, plus you have that palmitic acid part of the sphingosine base. You have three fatty acids total in an acyl ceramide. This is a group of lipids that uh, doesn't get as much attention as it should. And we've talked about them, but um, I think we're going to be able to get into a little bit, maybe not today, but next time. So you've got ceramide, you've got sphingosine 1-phosphate. Now, they tend to act contrarian in terms of cell fate. Ceramide tends to promote certain forms of PCD, programmed cell death, apoptosis that is, where sphingosine 1-phosphate typically inhibits programmed cell death, depending on a lot of other factors in the cellular environment, the organ environment. Um, but we did mention that sphingosine 1-phosphate can lead to a promotion of 
cancer and particularly metastasis, which makes sense because if you have programmed cell death or, or degeneration of cells on one hand with ceramide, there's phingosine 1-phosphate that might not but could promote cellular uh, division, which could lead, in, if it's uncontrolled, to an oncogenic event. Okay. So we know that sphingolipids play a major role in metabolic syndrome, obesity, and type 2 diabetes. And in particular, the two are ceramide and sphingosine 1-phosphate. Ceramide can also be phosphorylated, and it tends to function in yet an, a third way uh, in, in terms of regulation of cell fate and in terms of the regulation of uh, intermediary metabolism as well. But all of those sphingolipids do play a role in insulin signaling and in inflammation and, as I've been saying, in intermediary metabolism. But it's specific to the organ. So whereas the liver may function uh, via, uh, via either um, hepatocytic cirrhosis on one end with high levels of ceramide to hepatocellular carcinoma on the other, these are extremes, due to high levels of phingosine 1-phosphate. The lung tissue, the brain tissue, the kidney, the heart, the adipose, and the skeletal muscle, as well as smooth muscle, will function differentially given that axis of high ceramide or high sphingosine 1-phosphate. Uh, considering the, the relative ratios of those two lipids. And that, that's where all the complexity leads. And yet, these are all components of the pathobiochemistry of type 2 diabetes. Okay? So you have, we have to get into all of the specific organ systems and key each of those out to tell you where those cellular events match and don't match in terms of the relative ratio of ceramide versus phingosine 1-phosphate lipids in a particular cellular background. Okay. So that's what this paper actually is talking about. Okay, so you know that adipose has more than just adipocytes. You have pre-adipocytes, you have uh, mesenchymal stem cells, and you also have macrophages. Macrophages show up in all organ systems, and so the adipose is uh, not an exception. So you, so those are called adipose tissue macrophages or ATMs. Okay. And all of those cellular uh, structures will have various uh, deposition of triacylglycerol, sphingolipid, and phospholipid. So when you, again, you're talking now just about the adipose. You have multiple cellular lineages, and each one of those cells can, can contain variable levels of oil droplet triacylglycerol. And depending on that anatomical distribution in the adipose, you will have various types of dyslipidemia, necrosis, and inappropriate adipokine signaling and insulin resistance. Okay. Now, of course, the primary type of cell in white adipose tissue called WAT, W-A-T, is the white adipocyte. And the white adipocyte is largely several oil droplets, which are almost 100% triacylglycerol. But adipocytes in brown adipose tissue, known as BAT, B-A-T, 
the reason they're brown is because of the iron content. The iron content is because of the mitochondria. And that is linked to brown adipose tissue is linked to a protein called UCP1 or uncoupling protein 1, which generates heat. And of course, when you have UCP1, you're going to get much more lipid beta oxidation, fatty acid oxidation. But here it will be used not to generate ATP, but heat. And therefore, it is one form of thermogenesis. Now, it's minor in adult humans, but it's very significant in rodents. So how many times have I said that rodent model for adipose, for obesity, for leptin signaling, for type 2 diabetes, for that matter, type 1 diabetes, for metabolic syndrome, that whole system in rodents is not directly parallel to those same diseases in humans because humans put on very little brown adipose tissue. Now, infants have a fair amount around the scapula that keeps them warm. That's a major form of thermogenesis in newborn babies and in very, very young infants. But that adipose tissue um, gets uh, metabolized and eventually a white adipose tissue replaces it. Okay. So in an adult human, meaning after puberty, let's say, and there I'm stretching it out even more than you need to, most of the fat you put on is white adipose tissue. Now there is a browning effect where depending on the kind of uh, aerobic exercise one does, some of that lipid can be reconverted or redifferentiate or dedifferentiated to brown adipose tissue. And this has been shown. And so when that happens, that tends to be uh, good for losing weight, more BAT than WAT, means you're going to be burning fatty acid and generating heat rather than just running bioenergetics. And then when that happens, a sufficient amount of NADH and FADH2 build up, you're going to block that fatty acid oxidation. You're just going to start accumulating more and more. Whereas if you have mitochondria and more and more mitochondria and brown adipose tissue, you're going to be able to carry on the thermogenesis and at the same time, decrease the amount of depot fat. Now, there's a problem with that. And I talked about it. There are various kinds of diseases that are linked to too much brown adipose tissue because it is an inappropriate utilization of the electron transport gradient. So because of the uncoupling protein, you're uncoupling that inner mitochondrial membrane. That's why you generate heat rather than proton pumping ATP activity, ATP synthesis, excuse me. So that can lead to other problems because of uh, um, dysfunctional bioenergetics, particularly in skeletal muscle, but also in depot fat. So I think I've said enough about brown adipose tissue for now. Now, adipocyte progenitor cells from the adipose tissue stroma is responsible for the normal turnover of adipocytes. And that will then be in uh, association with immune cells in the adipose. And typically, we can talk primarily about macrophages. M1 macrophages, which are pro-inflammatory, and M2, which are quiescent and tend to be scavenger macrophages, picking up uh, dead or damaged cellular debris, right? But you do find macrophage turnover during adipose remodeling. 
that's not just watt to bat or bat to watt. That's also just the uh, increase in adipocyte mass and also ultimately the degradation or turnover of the adipocyte in terms of some kind of program cell death, right? So this is wherein you, uh, you find a lot of alterations in insulin sensitivity and resistance in the white adipose tissue. Because at the same time you're absorbing and accumulating fatty acid and actually synthesizing fatty acid from the uptake of glucose in the white adipose tissue, you're also exporting fatty acid and glycerol. And there's also some control over glucose homeostasis derived directly from the visceral fat organ system. Okay? And so that means that you're removing fatty acid and you are not oxidizing glucose during glycolysis, for example, to make fatty acid, right? Because glucose oxidation can lead to of course, the production of acetyl-CoA. Acetyl-CoA can be used in condensation with OAA to make citrate, and then that citrate can then be used to make fatty acid directly, right? Uh, after the ATP citrate lies, if mitochondria are involved, if there's a mitochondrial involvement, and that, that way you can lead to um, de novo fatty acid synthesis, and that's what does occur in the adipose, Okay. So keep in mind then that there's a constant turnover in healthy visceral fat, as well as any place where storage triacylglycerol is localized, right? And it's not always a dysfunctional metabolic pathway because you're, you're transporting fatty acid from the adipose to the liver via lipoproteins and via serum albumin, so the liver can beta oxidize those fatty acids during fasting and the oxidation of those fatty acids will lead to the reduced nucleotides, NADH and FADH2, which will then be used to generate ATP, which is necessary for gluconeogenesis. And the carbon for the glucose synthesis, of course, not coming from fatty acids in humans, but rather from carboxylic acids like lactic acid and pyruvate but also from amino acid transamination reactions, right? Okay. So this is what happens during normal postprandial turnover of metabolic stores right? during the fasting period between meals. Now, again, that becomes corrupted with high calorically dense regular feeding. It corrupts that long period of fasting between meals, and that leads directly to the adiposity problem. Now, glycerol becomes esterified with fatty acids. And when that happens, you make triacylglycerol. But if you have an excess of free fatty acid and they don't become esterified as oxygen esters to glycerol, then you're going to accumulate in the blood NEFA. Now, those can be called just free fatty acids. But if you want to remark on the fact that they're not esterified to glycerol in any way, then you can call them NEFA. So free fatty acid or non-esterified fatty acid, right? Now you can resynthesize triacylglycerol from the NEFA slash FFA pool, as long as there are active uh, acyl-CoA transferases in the tissue or in the cellular system that you are 
examining. And unfortunately, there's less of that esterification activity in lipoprotein trafficking and also in many of the cellular masses where those lipoproteins can dock to release their fatty acids. Okay. So, and plus you get a lot of circulating free fatty acid, again, in obese uh, subjects. And that free fatty acid is, it, it directly induces lipotoxicity because it moves through membranes. Therefore, it uncouples membranes wherever this occurs. But also it can lead to uh, an inhibition of uh, insulin-dependent glucose uptake in skeletal muscle, to some extent in smooth muscle, cardiac muscle, but also, of course, back at the adipose. Okay. So you have a lipolytic pathway in adipocytes, and that's controlled by the neuroendocrine system. So this includes insulin, glucagon, somatostatin, as well as the adipokines, right? And all of those endocrine hormone systems ultimately modulate the expression of proteins involved in lipid droplet synthesis, as well as hydrolytic enzymes, such as the lipases. The most prominent are the HSL, the hormone-sensitive lipase, and the ATGL, which is the adipose triglyceride, the triacylglycerol lipase, excuse me. Okay, so you have ATGL, and you have um, HSL, you also have monoglycerol uh, uh, lipase or MAGL. So it's three different components of lipases. And those are all regulated by cyclic AMP and cyclic GMP dependent signal transduction cascades. So the protein that uh, is found on the limit membrane around the oil drop with the protein 